Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. This is about how we integrate the system. This is full spectrum sustainability, which just means that what we do in one area supports and reinforces the larger context in which we work. This involves a mind shift that is a cultural mind shift in how we work and how we do things. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. The term resilience uh, is not self-explanatory. Uh, the mafia, for example, has been very resilient. So there, there's some issue of what we make resilient and what we don't. This is not a technical word. It is a very big political, moral, philosophical word that has technical aspects to it. This is not first and foremost a matter of squiggly light bulbs and Priuses and green buildings. It, this, this is a much bigger word. And if we take it seriously, it will take us to political issues, issues of distribution and welfare and the rights of generations yet to come. Professor David W. Orr has good reason to highlight the idea of resilience. In the early 1980s, climate change was a serious impending problem that could have been largely averted with swift action. By 2016, the problem had morphed into a predicament where there was no ready or single solution. Like the sorcerer's apprentice, we'd uncorked inexorable forces far beyond our control. Global warming has turned into global weirding because climate is the tripwire for every other foundational ecological and biological system, as well as the basis for human civilization. We'll be doing some fancy dancing to try to lessen and reverse the harms while scrambling to adapt to constantly changing conditions. In other words, get really resilient really fast. Fortunately, breakthrough pathfinders today are banding together to transform our ways of living and bring resilience thinking into widespread practice, resilience from the ground up. This is cultural mind shift, full spectrum sustainability and resilience with Professor David W. Orr, founder of the Oberlin Project, Timothy Burroughs, Berkeley, California's first chief resilience officer, and Tom Van Dyke, financial advisor and analyst of Royal Bank of Canada. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. As a response to climate disruption, Professor David W. Orr founded the Oberlin Project in Ohio. It's a bold and ambitious partnership between Oberlin College and the city of Oberlin to design and build the first post-carbon local economy in the country. He says the idea was to take all the elements associated with sustainability, put them together into a system where the parts reinforce the whole, and do it within about an eight-mile radius. 
or as the Paul Sears Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies at Oberlin College and senior advisor to its president. He's an award-winning scholar and visionary leader in the sustainability movement. He's renowned for his groundbreaking work on ecological design and ecological literacy in higher education. David W. Orr spoke at a Bioneers conference. We decided to start a partnership, a green block, that consisted of the college as the anchor institution. So anchor institutions are ones that will be there 100 years uh, from now, presumably. So we are midway between the college, the city, and the community, and the Oberlin Project set out some very ambitious goals. One was to get to carbon neutrality, both the city and the college. We so far eliminated uh, 90% of our carbon emissions in the city electric system. The goal for carbon neutrality, we're setting at 2025 and maybe run a little bit uh, longer than that. We're just completing work on the uh, what I think is the first entirely solar-powered hotel and conference center in the United States. And that is in a state where sunshine is a theory. The Oberlin Project is organized around community teams that integrate strategic sectors such as ecology, economic development, finance, community engagement, education, and public policy. As a way to revitalize the local and regional economy and culture, the coalition is working to rebuild 13 acres in downtown Oberlin to U.S. green building platinum standards. The teams have also worked with landowners to identify 20,000 acres that would be permanently dedicated to an agroforestry belt ringing the city to provide food, green space, and carbon sequestration. And our goal is very simply to build a coalition that consists of some federal agencies, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Treasury, and a White House, some foundations, but the major anchor educational institutions in this region. And uh, so Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Case Western, Oberlin, Bowling Green University, and so forth. And our target is to do three things. Shift their buying and investing power from where it is now to renewable energy and efficiency, local food, sustainable economy, and green infrastructure. The advantage of this is this. We're asking for no big federal program. This doesn't require major money from uh, any agency of the federal government. It doesn't require inventing anything. Each of these three areas is already a wave in motion. And so we're taking things already happening and amplifying them and getting the buying and investing power uh, behind this transition. The trick is to begin to take investment and procurement dollars and spend them for the long term. The problem in doing this, and talked to probably 30 CFOs and CIOs in the past uh, year, that if you invest locally, you may get a lower rate of return. If you buy locally, it may cost you more. But it may create collateral benefits that are realized off into a more distant future. And those benefits would include lots of things. Lower crime rates, more employment, lower carbon emissions, more local activity and innovation. But you can go down a long list of uh, collateral benefits that occur if anchor institutions invest and buy within the local economy. And so the, the difficulty for us is to begin to develop enough coalitional power, enough strength, that we can monetize those benefits. And so the conversations we're having right now with uh, people at the White House and U.S. Department of Treasury and uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture is how to begin to develop a financial structure that supports local investment. David Orr says the Oberlin model can be replicated in any region where colleges and universities are anchored. 
There are over 3,700 such institutions in the U.S. with a collective endowment of about $550 billion. That's real buying power and political clout. The quest is to take these models of resiliency to scale. Orr is working to expand the project to the wider Rust Belt area from Flint, Michigan to Detroit and Youngstown, Ohio. The Oberlin Project was honored for its visionary climate leadership by the Obama administration in 2014. Local governments are key to policy changes. The 100 Resilient Cities Initiative, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, provides financial and logistical guidance to cities to establish a transformative new position in municipal government, a chief resilience officer. This CRO works as a top-level advisor to the mayor and brings together stakeholders across diverse sectors to develop a resilient strategy. Berkeley, California, is among the 100 resilient cities around the world to have a chief resilience officer, Timothy Burroughs. One of the things that we're, we're working on from a disaster preparedness perspective is backup power, uh, providing backup power for critical facilities that have a function in the event of a disaster. And we saw with Sandy, we saw with Katrina, that communities in the wake of these disasters are just crippled for weeks because the power grid is disrupted. And that really has an important impact, a devastating impact on the, the ability of cities to provide services and to recover from these disasters, right? So we know we need to provide backup power for critical facilities because we know in Berkeley and in the Bay Area we're extremely vulnerable to disasters, right? And earthquakes come right to mind. So one way that you might provide backup power to a critical set of facilities is a, is a generator. You hook a building up to a diesel generator and when power goes out, that diesel generator can kick in. And that's the most conventional, common approach that cities and other types of entities use, right? And that has a value, but it has a very narrow value. And you can look at that problem and you can address it in, in other ways that create other sets of benefits. So what we're looking at now in Berkeley and other cities in the Bay Area as well is pursuing microgrids. And a microgrid essentially enables a building or a set of buildings to operate independently of the grid when the grid is disrupted. And that microgrid, or mini-grid, you could call it, separate from the main grid, can be powered by distributed sources of clean energy, like solar, like wind, like backup battery storage. That's a much different solution than a diesel generator, right? It's still providing the same benefit. It's providing backup power. But it's doing so in a way that it reduces greenhouse gas emissions and local air pollutants. It reduces the noise associated with a diesel generator. It also reduces the vulnerability, the lack of redundancy with a diesel generator where you need access to that fuel. and You might not have that access in the event of a disaster. Totally different type of solution. Part of Berkeley's resilient strategy is to advance racial equity in the city. Because low-income communities and communities of color disproportionately bear the brunt of harms from climate disruption, developing solutions through an equity lens is key. Berkeley's plan improves hiring practices to ensure diversity in key policy positions. It guides the city's budget and procurement processes to benefit the whole community. Berkeley also developed community choice aggregation programs, which allow it to form a not-for-profit local power agency that bundles the buying power of residents and businesses to purchase clean power. Its solar action plan aims to provide half Berkeley's power through solar energy by 2030. There's lots more, and Berkeley Chief Resilience Officer Timothy Burrow says, the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts, or any one player.
Another quick example, green infrastructure. Flooding is a major challenge. If it ever rains again in the Bay Area, you're going to see a lot of flooding in cities all over the Bay Area, mostly because we have old stormwater systems that can't handle the water as it comes down. That problem is only exacerbated by sea level rise and by more extreme storms. You can address that problem through bigger and more pipes, or you can address that same problem through green infrastructure and rain gardens, bioretention areas, cisterns that can capture stormwater and also filter out some of the pollutants before it gets to the bay. Same solution, different approach. Multiple benefits bringing multiple people to the table. So the network that I'm, I'm part of, that the city of Berkeley is part of, as well as San Francisco and, and Oakland, 100 resilient cities, there's a lot of value in that network because those types of solutions are more easily shared across a network. And cities copy off of each other all the time on every single issue. Who's doing this well and how can we find out more about it? And Berkeley has had a lot of programs that we started in Berkeley that are now nationwide and sometimes even worldwide. Property Assessed Clean Energy Financing is one of those examples. It's a program that started in Berkeley and is now at, at a national scale where you can do solar and other types of energy improvements on a home at no upfront cost and pay back the cost of that improvement on your property tax bill. That started in one city and it's now nationwide. Bans on plastic bags started in a few cities uh, around the country and now it's, it's state law in the state of California and other states as well. So the other value of a network is not just sharing best practices but leveraging the power of multiple cities together to affect change bigger than just one municipality to affect state level, regional, state level, and federal policy, and there's a lot of power in that. Like the Oberlin Project, the 100 Resilient Cities Network is leveraging local full-spectrum solutions and models to scale them horizontally and to percolate them up to the federal level. When we return, embracing an epic economic shift and the greatest wealth creation opportunity of our time at igniting a cultural mind shift. This is Cultural Mind Shift, Full Spectrum Sustainability and Resilience. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. To explore all available Bioneers radio shows, video programming, and more, please visit Bioneers.org. In 2015, the nonprofit news outlet Inside Climate News published bulletproof documentation showing that Exxon's own climate research scientists had concluded as early as 1982 that the burning of fossil fuels was altering the Earth's very climate. To avoid catastrophic climate change, Company scientists said we'd have to leave 80% of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground. Exxon's scientific projections proved to be frighteningly accurate. But by the early 1990s, Exxon joined the rest of the fossil fuel industry to mount the biggest and most successful disinformation campaign in history to sow doubt and delay while continuing to burn fossil fuels as if there were no tomorrow. Now, it's high noon in a policy showdown to shift to a low-carbon economy and civilization. Financial analyst and advisor Tom Van Dyke says the fossil fuel industry is facing a dramatic reversal of fortune. Its well-oiled corporate profit machine is suddenly staring down the 55-gallon barrel of massive risk. 
a managing director of the Royal Bank of Canada and a longtime leader in social and environmental investing. He was named by the Financial Times on their list of the top 400 financial advisors in 2013. Tom Van Dyke spoke at a Bioneers conference. And what Wall Street is beginning to grapple with is the understanding, thank you very much to the carbon tracker ex-oil analyst, I might add, who revealed a few years ago that the assets that are on the balance sheets of the fossil fuel companies today, that 80% of those assets need to stay in the ground and are not going to be burned to monetize. That's the term stranded assets. That's where that comes from. Now, joining the carbon tracker ex-oil analysts are oil analysts at major banks like HSBC, Citicorp, basically saying the same thing, that this is a risk. So Wall Street's becoming perceptive to some of the risks of owning carbon. One of them is stranded assets. The other risk that they're looking at is the standpoint of litigation. Like tobacco, many of these companies, as you may know, Inside Climate just broke a story where a researcher inside one of these large oil companies, actually in 1978 to 1982, actually knew that they were going to have to leave 80 percent in the ground. Now, when you approach shareholders who go and say, can you please discuss to us the risks that we have from owning carbon on your balance sheets, and they tell you there's no risk, or yes, there's some risk, but these stranded assets aren't going to land on our balance sheets, is this going to go the arc of change like tobacco did, where it leads to litigation, where cities and counties are basically picking up the tab as severe weather situations, whether it be drought, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, okay, whatever it happens to be, fires, the liabilities that land on the balance sheets of the fossil fuel companies or they land on our balance sheets, the taxpayers, while the shareholders make money. In a free market system, pollution is a subsidy. And carbon pollution, in this case, we are picking up the tab or they have to pick up the tab. And that's the debate that I think Wall Street's beginning to understand that, well, it might land on the balance sheets of the fossil fuel companies. Dating back to the birth of the industrial era, Nearly two-thirds of the world's CO2 and methane emissions are the responsibility of just 90 companies. Major lawsuits are now shifting culpability to these carbon majors. Big Carbon is taking the litigation very seriously, since a federal appeals court found that U.S. cities and individuals suffering economic and other damages have standing to sue. The companies are also vulnerable to fraud and civil conspiracy charges for funding climate deniers while internally acknowledging the climate science for decades. There are other risks, too. Tighter regulations on carbon emissions, the inevitability of a carbon tax, nervous insurers, and not least, volatile oil prices. If you are a user of electricity... Are you going to expose your cost to this type of volatility? Or, with right now, with technology energy companies, solar, wind, you're getting cheaper and cheaper with every single generation, right? More efficient and cheaper. So how can a fossil fuel price company compete against a technology that's getting cheaper and cheaper and more efficient with every generation? It's like analog versus digital. This evolution is taking place because you have a technology change. You have technology entering an old, antiquated pricing system that can make it way more efficient, way more sustainable, and way more economical. So what are the large companies doing that have huge electrical demand? They're saying, well, we're going to go 100% renewable energy. Why? Because you can go to a solar company or wind company and say, can I lock in my costs for 20 years and get a power purchase agreement? In the case of wind, I was talking to a guy in environmental entrepreneurs thing the other day. Two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. 
in the panhandle of Texas he's putting in wind power. Two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. 20 years, lock it in. Solar, 10 to 14 cents, depending on how big you're doing it. Locked in 20 years. You go to a natural gas guy and say, can I lock in price? They're saying, forget it. We think natural gas is not going to be below three bucks forever. We're not going to lock you in for 20 years. That's ridiculous. They can't lock in their costs. So if you're a business, these are big businesses. You want to lock that cost in so you can effectively allocate capital as running a company in an efficient way across the next 20 years. So you're seeing major corporations, Facebook, Google, move in this direction because it's the best economic thing for them to be doing. The idea that we are transitioning from burning a carbon molecule to producing an electron to using renewable sources to produce that electron is going to be the largest economic shift of this generation and biggest wealth generation opportunity that we know. And it's going to affect every single element of our economy. It's going to be in water, wastewater, infrastructure, energy, energy storage, key, grid, geothermal, solar wind, transportation. It's going to be in buildings, HVAC, lighting, LED lighting, insulation, waste reduction, recycling, water, energy, sustainable packaging, agriculture. It's going to be across the entire economy. Just do the math, says Tom Van Dyke. Follow the money and the jobs. In 2015, jobs in renewable energy increased over 20%, up to nearly 300,000, and produced 8% of energy in the U.S. We have more people working in the solar industry than we do in entertainment in California, than we do in the utilities. You don't need to have a reserve outside your door to go tap it. Every single city and county has access to this. Look what's happening to coal. Coal has 60,000 people in it, yet what, it produces what, 35% of our energy? So one of the arguments that's being made politically is like, well, you know, we, we can't really do this because China, you know, if China keeps polluting, or India for that matter, if China keeps polluting, what's the point? You know, we, we can't really do this. Well, 7.7 million jobs worldwide. Now, this includes biofuel, biomass, hydro, okay, and wind and solar. So it's a broader renewable section. It's not just wind and solar. In the oil industry, there's about 4 million jobs worldwide. So there's already almost two to one in the renewable energy area. What kind of money do we put to work? $310 billion last year. We need to push this up to a trillion dollars. It's going up 16%. Where do we put that money? Half of it went to solar. Half of that solar went to rooftop solar. Okay, decentralized power. The next industry to be disrupted other than the fossil fuel will be the utilities. Why? Because they're highly inefficient. That's what technology does. We are capitalists. We're for innovation. We're for making things more efficient, more sustainable. You can do that through this system, through innovation. It creates jobs, and it does it in a way that we can actually live on the planet. Tom Van Dyke says that the economic benefits of renewable energy investments are also motivating many cities to go green, allowing them to save tax dollars and lower energy costs. But while there are many reasons to move toward 100% renewable energy, he says the federal government can do more by making permanent the government's investment tax credits for solar energy and production tax credits for wind power, not to mention a significant reduction in the ginormous subsidies it still gives fossil fuel companies, a mature industry that ought to be able to make it on its own or face the creative destruction of a market economy. Van Dyke is also a board member of As You Sow, a nonprofit foundation that's been a top leader in the mushrooming movement advocating for investors to divest from fossil fuel holdings. In just a few years, it's gone from zero to divestment of almost $4 trillion. Or in the case of energy companies themselves, Tom Van Dyke says it's time for them to move toward renewables. 
But do they have the energy to do it? That would be a logical thing to think, that they would get that their energy companies is not fossil carbon companies. So in talking to one of the people who, his name's Lou Alstead, he merged Mobile with Exxon. He's a top-level, C-level guy. He's, he's retired. He lives in Cooperstown, New York. He's against fracking. He's for climate change. I said to Lou the exact same question. And Lou said, here's the deal. These guys know a lot about one thing. They know a lot about pulling carbon out of the ground. They've gone to the mining schools. They hire from within. You don't see a CEO come in from the outside at Exxon and Chevron. They've been inside the company for 30, 25 years. And they know a lot about that. It's kind of like asking an orthodontist to do heart surgery. You know, they might be all medical doctors. It's not going to happen. He's like, these guys can't come out against fracking, even though Rex Tillerson, the head of Exxon, doesn't want fracking in his backyard. They're not going to come out for climate change because he's basically said they'll lose their jobs. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And that new idea has come. And it's not a hammer, says David Orr. This is about how we integrate the system. This is full spectrum sustainability, which just means that what we do in one area supports and reinforces the larger uh, context in which we work. This involves a mind shift that is a cultural mind shift. It isn't simply a, a change in bureaucracy or a change in economy. This is a vast shift in how we work and how we do things. We need an army of young people coming behind us in this generation that understands how this works so that we make this the easy thing to do. These coalitions result then in a very different kind of culture that becomes the default setting. It's the easy thing to do, the green thing, that makes it clean, green, safe, and fair. That's the challenge ahead of us. David Orr, Tom Van Dyke, and Timothy Burroughs. Cultural mind shift, full spectrum sustainability, and resilience. You can see and hear more from David Orr and Tom Van Dyke and explore more Bioneers radio programs, podcasts, and videos online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Osabel. Written by Kenny Osabel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Program engineer, Emily Harris. Production assistants, Tina Rubio and Melanie Choi. Our theme music is co-written by the Baca Forest People of Cameroon and Baca Beyond from the album East to West. All royalties from Baca compositions and performances go to the Baca Forest People through the charity Global Music Exchange. Find out more at globalmusicexchange.org. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. Patuxent Music at pxrec.com. And Colin Farish at colinfarish.com. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers' Revolution from the Heart of Nature are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations.
This is program number 0616.